Hey everyone, it's Aaron. Uh, the next episode is with the CEO and founder of Farm Girl Flowers, Christina Stembel. She's an amazing person. She joined me in studio on Valentine's Day. So it was our date in the studio. I just want to let you know that since then, and since the coronavirus pandemic, she's actually had to shutter her manufacturing facility in San Francisco. It's about 200 employees temporarily not working, and she's had to relocate her distribution to Ecuador. So everything's coming from South America now. I would encourage you, if you can, if you can find it in your heart, to continue to use Farm Girl Flowers. It's an amazing story. Enjoy listening, and I hope that very soon things get back to this new normal and people get back to work and they're able to get their livelihoods back. Enjoy. Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio here in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Christina Stemble. Christina is founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce flower company founded in 2010. Built on the foundation of her own seed money, that's the first dad joke, and dedicated to ethical practices, Farm Girl Flowers has flourished into a multi-million dollar company in its hometown of San Francisco. Christina has combined her quality over quantity mentality with a keen understanding of the white space in the consumer marketplace and an honestly transparent mentality about the environmental impact of the ethically grown flowers they source. Christina, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Uh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I love having you in studio, and this is a really cool story, and we're going to touch on a bunch of different things. But just so we all have a baseline of education about the flower industry, how does it work? Because here to date for me, it's either I go on 1-800-Flowers, or I go to the flower store. And it happens to be Valentine's Day today, of course, as we're, as we're taping. And, and, you're, and you're fresh back from a Today Show appearance yesterday. Congrats. Um, thank you. Was that your first like national broadcast appearance? No, it was a follow-up show. They did one in 2016 on us. And we've had several, we had Kelly Clarkson show a couple weeks ago. We've been really fortunate with our PR. It's been amazing. And do you get nervous when you go on? Not anymore. No? I used to though. You I mean, maybe it, a little right? bit, but I just know it's so good for business. So I used to want to be an actress, so I'm kind of getting to live that dream a little bit years later. It's not too late. Yeah, exactly. Even in my 40s, you can go for it. Isn't it cool, (laughs) though, when you come off a broadcast segment, that jolt of energy? It's quite unlike anything else. It's hard to describe. Absolutely. And you're like on a high for like a while, right? And you probably see an immediate impact on your website. Yes. I mean, we have somebody on my team is like always looking at analytics to see in real time what the impact is. It's great. It's a shout out for PR. Okay, so I digress. So explain the flower growing industry. Well, it's probably longer than we have. So I'm going to give you a little brief snapshot. It's like agriculture in general. So it's not super efficient. It's usually family businesses, a lot of family businesses, which research will show any family business. It's not a very high success rate when it goes down to the second or third generation, and it's not any different in flowers. So What I have found, what I've learned in the industry is domestic is very different than international and how it's run. Most domestic farms that we work with are second or third generation, and they're run like second or third generation companies, whereas most of the farms that we work with internationally are first generation. And so there's definitely a different hunger level of needing something to succeed when you're first generation. In the United States, Many times the farm land that the farms sit upon is worth more than the actual business. And so it's kind of run that way as well. And it's also very male driven. So one of my biggest challenges in starting this company has been being able to work within a space 
where the value of women is far less than men. And there are still some farms that will not sell to me, but they will sell to all of our male counterparts. Do you want to name those farms? I kind of do. <laughs> I will have a pretty woman moment with them where I'll go back after I'm hugely successful. And I want to be already, there for that. It's already starting to, to happen. Many of them now that haven't sold to me for nine and a half years now are willing to, but I don't I want like to give them any. I like there's a Netflix documentary I think in the future. Because there's just, I mean, you know, it's really hard for me to have to give money to those farms now, but we need their flowers. And it's crazy to think that we're in 2020 and you just said what you just said. Absolutely. And people don't believe me until I show them emails and receipts for that. And they're like, oh, whoa, that's I'm going to hypnotize you later so you name yeah, it. <laughs> it's amazing. So the industry in general, is, I mean, it's agriculture. It's the same. Supply chain is very broken. It's everybody operates a little differently. There's still like most farms. There's no way to like order online or anything. You need to call like a salesperson there and in person. And then they might send you a confirmation email that you'll get this order. And then three days later, they'll say, actually, we don't have that. So it's a very broken supply right, chain. It's not which sophisticated been, or no, very not professional. Sophisticated. And there's no like very analog technology tools that have helped this supply chain to date. So that's a really good opportunity for someone out there that's listening to do that. So, and then there's the, from the farm side, then there's transportation side, which is also kind of antiquated as well. And hard because then you have to get the flowers to you using trucks or airplanes or all those means. And then there's like customs and stuff if it's coming internationally. And it's a very hard industry to not only break into, but figure out how to make work efficiently and in a little impact as possible to the environment is very challenging. And to be clear, because this is a common theme on the show, you knew shit. You knew nothing, <laughs> nothing. about flower farming, selling flowers, yeah. putting them together. Nothing, right? nothing. The art behind it, the design, nothing from start to finish. You knew nothing. The only thing I knew was I didn't like what was out there. I knew nothing about how to arrange flowers. I knew nothing about how to buy flowers. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Thanks. I knew nothing how to buy flowers. I had no idea about consumers of flowers. I knew nothing. So I learned everything from Google and YouTube. Actually, you know, I started buying a bunch of flower arranging books and I didn't like the designs in them. So I threw them all away and I was like, I need to stop because I don't want to be like this because this is what's wrong with it. So I'm just going to like have an open mind and create when I was trying to come up with a design aesthetic for our flowers. I was like, I'm just going to create something I'd want to receive. And when I first started, it was hilarious because people in the space would make fun of me like crazy. I mean, you'd see it all over digital media in the flower mart in San Francisco, where I was located after the first two years, people would just be really mean and be like, oh, she doesn't even have any training in this. I mean, look, look at her designs are horrible. She's putting five of that flower in there. And I'm like, what? I didn't know there was like, do you use two of this. And I mean, you're not supposed to mix Cymbidium orchids with any other flower. I knew nothing because I was just like, well, I like them with roses, so I'm going to put them together. And people would make fun of me and I just found it hilarious because I'm like, well, I think it's pretty. This is just an incredible story to me because this is your 10th year in business. You've broken a revenue of 30 million. Like I said, you just came out of the Today Show. It's not your first broadcast appearance. You've been highlighted and featured in Harvard Business Review. And you started and you're operating in one of the most judgy, kind of cliched, difficult environments in San Francisco in the Bay Area where they don't suffer fools. And like you just said, they're even judging you for like your arrangements, right? It's bullshit. And you had an untraditional path. You didn't go to college and you worked at a university, you worked at Stanford in alumni relations at the law school, right? Yes, correct. So it's just mind boggling to me. And it just makes me giddy to see how successful you are and how down to earth and how you own it. And I read the story, I think it was a first person byline that you wrote in Quartz. And you talked about this kind of like this black sheep mentality and how you don't need to have a pedigree, but everybody in the Valley is all about your pedigree. 
Talk a little bit about that and how that made you feel and how you're feeling now about that. I think it's still a big insecurity that I have because it's the first thing that people care about. At the same time, I know- Not here in the studio, not right on purpose, just so you know. Thank you. It's probably the number one reason why I haven't been able to raise outside capital, to be honest, is because number one, I don't look like a typical founder or CEO. Wait, what do you mean by that? I didn't- You don't have a man bun? I don't have a man bun. (laughs) I don't wear the tech vest. I I'm didn't. so glad I didn't wear a vest today. Yeah, so, <laughs> the billions vest, right? Yeah, you brought your billions. Exactly. Like yes, wearing. it's amazing. And I didn't go to Stanford Business School. I didn't work at one of the big five. I didn't work at Google, Facebook, Apple, any of those. I don't have any of that on my resume. And my team does not either. So the people that I hire look very much like me. And that matters because the people I've hired that haven't looked like me with the Harvard Business School and all of those degrees have not worked out at all at Farm Girl because we are not like any of those other companies. You have to work really hard with your hands. You have to be scrappy. And what I found are people with those pedigrees can't do well in our environment because that's not how we built it. Do they tend to overthink things as well? Yeah, they also want to take everything so slow where they want to overanalyze for like two years before we do something. And I'm like, oh, we're going to open a distribution center in Ecuador in three months. Okay, let's do this. And we do it. And then it goes. And we don't have to make everything perfect or overthink things or have spreadsheets that will prove it for 500 different. I'm not stupid. Or we have, have our hire, numbers. You but have to hire McKinsey to yes, tell exactly. you. Yes, exactly. have consultants tell us they should. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If somebody tells me they're a consultant, I shut the door immediately. Unless, like, they're, unless they're really cool, smart marketing PR brand. Maybe marketing PR in different, the future, definitely, but like yeah. definitely operations. No, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I think it was a big reason why we couldn't raise outside capital. They would say, well, you know, we just don't really think that you have a team that's set up for success yet. And I begged to differ. I think I have a team that is set up for success. And I think the team they'd want to bring in probably would leave us where a lot of the other flower companies are, which is not a good place right now. How did you find your team? Given the struggles that you just outlined, how did you then do it? Because obviously you love them and you think they're high performing and they're awesome regardless. Yes. Most of them have come up through the ranks. So so you farmed them. Farmed them. Exactly. Last dad jokes. So good at those dad yeah, jokes. Yeah. Well, I've got practice. It's great. And so my head of growth operations started as a $14 an hour part-time flower designer five years ago. And then just learned every job there. So I'm really looking for the type of person who's intellectually curious and completely self-motivated for success on their own. And those people do really well at Farm Girl because they want to do more and they will learn it on their own because we don't have any fat. You're going to have to do four or five jobs when you come in. And how diverse is your staff? Very diverse. We're over 70% diverse on our team. And gender? Not even just gender. I mean, our management team have two males and the rest are female, but overall just in racial, sexual orientation, like any kind of that people self-select as diverse or over 70%. And I'm just going to take a guess at this because we've had so many discussions about diversity and inclusion and my own feeling, and not everybody agrees, especially the folks who have thousands of degrees in these things, is that if you just run the business the way you need to run the business, D&I, as they call it, shouldn't be an issue. It should just happen because you're attracting the people you're saying I'm welcoming and you're attracting the right people regardless of kind of who they are and where they come from. It's because they're really skilled and they meet your cultural kind of norms, like your culture and what you've said. Well, you right? hire them. Oh, that's the only thing that worries me about that is that 
people trust people that look like them. And this is what I found True. in this industry is people don't trust me in the flower space. I'm the only female founded large scale e-commerce flower company out there. That's just baffling to me. 81% of people that buy flowers are women as well. Interesting. Maybe I'm baffled by it only because I'm not in that business. And also I'm in a business that when you're in the marketing field, you're on the edge of cultural zeitgeist and what should happen, what shouldn't happen. And also we like to work with provocative brands. So I'm not the right person to talk to about it because that just seems like totally foreign to me. It seems insane. It but seems I, insane to me too. It's just true. But it sounds like you've broken down a lot of those barriers, but you still have a few more to work on. We're that kind of that little company that could kind of thing. We're like, go ahead, underestimate us. We're going to show you. Like when people had got 104 no's on funding and had a lot of strikingly similar companies pop up that were doing very similar things to us and we're able to raise pre-revenue, $10 million pre-revenue. We have a company that's, I think, over $70 million now as a competitor. And really early on, I was very fearful and I thought, they're probably going to put us out of business. One of them put a billboard right outside of our door even. I was like, we're going to go out of business. That's a classic bullying tactic, by the way, to, to do something in someone's backyard. Yeah. yeah. And I thought my little team of 40 at that point was going to lose their jobs by the end of the year. And what I realized through that is that's not true. Right. And you're a fighter. You're not going to. Totally. And go ahead and underestimate us and we'll just keep going and we'll make sure that we're the best. And I've changed my mentality instead of being worried by them. I celebrate them. They should actually fuel, right? They do. Objective. And it makes me feel really good because 10 years in, they're still, we're the company everybody is doing strikingly similar things to. And I'm like, if they're doing it based on someone else, like what they're doing, that means that I've lost that toehold of like the, what I think to be the best company out there. And then I need to be worried that we're falling behind. But the fact that everybody's still looking to us for inspiration for what they're doing makes me feel really good. And I'm going to celebrate that. Are you getting support from other female founders and CEOs in adjacent or other fields in the area or not so much? Some. I definitely have a network of female entrepreneurs and male entrepreneurs as well. But one thing I wish that we as women would do better is support each other better. That's um, kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. I'd rather you say that than yeah. you say that. But we're that's not a, great at but it. People talk about that a lot. Yeah, we're just not great at that. And I think I'm sure it goes way back to only having one seat at the table and we have to like elbow each other to, for that one seat because it's just been, there's such a scarcity in it. So I know that that's where it's probably coming from. So it's not malicious intent behind it. But it's really sad to me how we break each other and tear each other down instead of lifting each other up. We, as a company, don't do that. We actively put out gift guides every year, and it's all female-owned companies. And we don't ask for anything. All of our gift boxes right now on our website, 100% are female-owned, at least 50% female-owned for all the products. And that's through supporting them with our dollars. We don't ask people for free stuff. We're going to support them because we want to live. Right. Them it's up. not like you're like an affiliate marketer exactly. or whatever. Yeah. But when I see other that I know really well, female brands that are choosing to work with our competitors and I'm like, why would you do that? We would never do that for you. We would choose you over your competitors because you're female owned and it's already so much harder for you that we want to do everything we can to support you. And I haven't seen that be a very universal thought and practice. Right. And, and kind of going back to that whole kind of pedigree thing and the environment you're operating in, in the Bay area, you have a lot of folks who rely on their Ivy league networks, which is a real thing. I've come up against it. I get it. But you've also found a lot of support in organizations like YPO. I love YPO. I'm a huge supporter of YPO. And at first I wasn't the first few and times. That's young people, president's organization. Yes. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did. Cause I always get invites to these things and I'm like, I'm going to be 50 this year. 
Why do you think I should be young? And it is weird. The rules are weird. You have to get in before you're 45 and you age out at 50. And I'm like, is that really young anymore? Because I feel like that should be moved up some. But I'm with you. Yeah, it's an older organization. But the first few times people asked me to be in it, I was like, I have no time for stuff like this. None. I'm not a joiner anyway. Like with stuff like this, I'm like, I don't want to sit around a table. Kumbaya. I'm like, I need to get stuff done. And (laughs) 150% of your effort right now is on your business. Exactly. So it's hard. And so... I just thought it was a big waste of time. And then a good friend that I respect a lot that I'd met, she was in it and she was telling me all the great things about it. And I was like, well, she, I really respect her a lot. And if she's saying it's so amazing, I should give it a try. And it's been wonderful, especially as a solo founder. I don't have any other founders. I don't have a C-suite either. Are you 100% owner of 99. the company? 99.86%. I have an early team member that's no longer with us that has a tiny fraction. But yes, for the most part, if you round up a little bit, I am. So I didn't have just... Who do you talk about when you're like, I'm dealing with this new tax in San Francisco that I can't wrap my head around how we're going to be able to afford? Or what are you doing about like how we can't find hourly team members anymore in San Francisco where one bedroom costs 4,500 bucks or something? What do you do for that? And there's somebody in that organization that can help with anything. We had, it's probably not great to say on air, but we had a data breach a couple of years ago. Everybody which, has data breaches. Yeah, they do. It's just nobody. It's just a sign of success these days. You finally made it, right? Yeah, you've made Lawsuits it. Lawsuits right. and data breaches. Lawsuits, data breaches. <laughs> yeah, breach. exactly. totally. And there's somebody in YPO that helped me with that. So there's somebody in there that can help with any issue that you're having. And it's great to have that network and to have it without, like, I don't have a board. I don't have any that, that this has become kind of like a impromptu board that I have then. It's interesting because you talk a little bit about in some of your interviews and your firsthand accounts that you think, mentoring is kind of bullshit. I do. I totally do. I'm with you. I think it's bullshit if it's forced. This is going to be your mentor and whatever. What you just described is a very kind of naturally occurring, organic way. Don't call it a mentorship. Just call it like, this is a friend of mine that also has a business that's helping me. It's, it's, It's a relationship. It's somebody who has been incredibly helpful. Hopefully it's a mutual kind of relationship and I respect them. And without them, I might not have done this, this, and this and vice versa. And that's the beauty of it. Absolutely. I mean, there are many times that I've called people through networks that I have that I don't know really well. It's like this person knows this person. I'm like, I really have a burning question for this person that would really help me with the decision I'm making. And so that's kind of like a mentorship probably like, can I just get five minutes, a phone call for five minutes and ask you one question? And they've never said no to me for that. And so I've never said no to anybody else that's asked me for that. I'll give 15 minutes to anybody on the phone pretty much if I have time. It might be a couple months out if I'm really booked for the holiday, but I'll always do that. But you need to come to it with like, I have this question that's going to help. I don't want somebody that's like, I want you to be my mentor. Now what? It's like, no, time is so limited. You need to get the most out of it. Talk to me a little bit about a couple of the arrangements that also have very strong underlying societal themes like woman in the arena. We talked about this off air. We are a very proud feminist company and we make no apologies for that at all. We also stand up for what we believe politically, which a lot of companies don't agree with doing that as well. And well, more these days, but you're still on the edge of that. For absolutely. Sure. We're totally fine with all of the emails and messages from people saying, because you stood up for this and spoke out about this, I'm never buying from you again, you're a horrible person, all that. We're fine. Sometimes when that happens, we'll lose five to 10,000 followers on one of our channels and we'll get so tons fine. of So fine, go, go buy some crappy flowers exactly. from 1-800-Flowers. We're absolutely fine whatever. with that, yeah. exactly. And so our product lineup kind of follows suit with that. Brene Brown's a huge inspiration to me and reading her books just really changed how I led my company. And the man in the arena quote has been with me since reading her. And this her is the Teddy book. Roosevelt Teddy quote. Roosevelt, yeah. And it's basically, if you're not in the arena, 
shut the fuck up. Exactly. Stop judging. Exactly. Right. Like you try this, you try failing. Cause that's what really success is. Exactly. Doing it. Right. Yep. And I've made some bad calls and I own them, but I don't need thousands of people telling me and rubbing it in my face and like telling me I'm a horrible person and I deserve like to be killed for that. And like people go to the like extremes and the, the public. And so that got me through a lot. I've always had a copy of that on my wall and it's helped me a lot. And so we just recently redid it. Cause I was like, I'm staring at this man in the arena through tears probably one night because of something that happened. And I'm like, I want to read woman in the arena. I want it to be relevant for me. And so we redid the pronouns to be all feminine pronouns in the quote. And it's been one of our biggest sellers on our website. We also put an enamel pin. So in each box that we ship out, and that was simply because I wanted to make the unboxing experience special. When we started national shipping, I was worried all the research I did showed that people didn't like to get flowers in a box. They wanted them handed to the recipient. And I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) I can't do that. Did you ask a consultant for that research? (laughs) (laughs) A consultant named Google. He's my favorite. She's my favorite. Them. them. Yeah, them are my favorite. So yeah, I was like, how do I make this special? So I thought of Cracker Jacks growing up and the toy surprise in the cereal box. And I was like, we just need to give them a little treat that makes it fun to open. And so that's what we did. And so we created these enamel pins. And the first one was just a little burlap wrap bouquet, our signature. And then after that, we're like, a couple of my team members came up with this and they would listen to stories I would tell and they would jot down like ideas. And they're like, what if we made a pin like this? And these two people on my team that are amazing came up with this whole pin series that are like stories from my life. And they're usually like, one of them's grit. It says grit on the pin. And another one's like, be a workhorse in a sea of unicorns. And where we happen to be, our studio is called Grit because it's also a conference, right? That's amazing. It's like serendipitous to be in the studio. Yeah. So, and the funny thing is the pins have resonated so much with consumers even more than the bouquets, they are photographed, put on social media. They resonate so much with what people are going through in their own lives. And I just think that's how we can like connect with our consumer better and found that, like I said, 81% of people that buy flowers are women buying for women. And that's something that really sets us apart because we understand what women go through. 81% of flowers being purchased or women buying for women. Yeah, they're not men. All the marketing ads that you see are very genderized towards men buying for women. Not quite Linda Peloton commercial type, but it's the same. Oh, some are worse. I have some old posters that are basically like, if you buy flowers, you will get this from her. You can imagine what that is. Like the old 80s and 90s posters from those leading account companies. Yeah, and I can tell you it doesn't work. Offensive. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, But yeah, women know what it feels like to receive flowers themselves. So that's why they want to send it to all of the important women in their lives. And so those pens that tell a story about why we're doing what we're doing really authentically have really resonated. So you're really marketing towards women primarily. Do you think that market can expand? Do you think it could be less genderized, even in terms of women buying flowers for women? I prefer to market to women anyway. I just, I understand a woman's brain better. And so without all those consultants telling me what, what's in a man's brain, it's easier for me. I also just think women are the natural consumers of almost everything. And so while they're an expensive set to market to, the 25 to 54-year-old woman, it's also who kind of controls most of the purse strings in almost any industry and especially in ours. And so I think it's really wise to market to women. And I find it funny that other companies choose not to and really kind of devalue that. I mean, right now in Valentine's Day is the only time of year that the consumers completely shift to over 90% male. And it's for like two or three days. Yeah. And I hate it. It's like my least favorite holiday because I mean, I've even done focus groups around it and have found what women and what men want are totally different. 
I mean, we all kind of know that, but in flowers, it works in that too. What men want are very bold, bright colored bouquets that are very large and all the heads of the flowers have to be very large. And so what women want are more like a typical farm girl bouquet, muted colors. And we did a focus group to find that out because I couldn't figure out why consumers at Valentine's Day were not as happy as consumers the rest of the time of the year. And so I just asked them and I sent them two pictures and 100% of the women chose our normal bouquet. And there was 40 men and 40 women and it's 39 out of 40 men chose the Crayola box with a very bright colored bouquet. So it's just, it's challenging to shift your entire product, mix everything. Do you think some of that too is just kind of typical male, like checking the box and making it a transaction and not, I'm not trying to like bash my male peers and colleagues in the world, but sometimes we are just checking boxes and just moving through the day and they're not being as thoughtful as they probably could be. Potentially. I also just think men are drawn to different things. Like, so if I put a bucket of flowers in front of you and one was really bright and one was more muted, you probably would go for the very bright colors. Not now because I know the secret. So I would game it. But yes, you're probably right. You're probably right. It's different. And so I'm embarrassed to say that I was just introduced to Brene Brown as a thought leader and as an author and a speaker because I watched her show on Netflix. Better late than never. I know, but I feel really, really late. I was in a client meeting the other day and they're like, really? Like what took you so long? And I was the only male in the room just for the record. Actually, there's one other male. she resonates really well with women too, where men, yeah. I find it really love Simon Sinek. And so I think there's different. I don't love him so no. much. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. The difference is, and I don't take anything away from him. I think what he's built is incredible. And he's taking kind of things that are obvious and putting them into a structure. I mean, it's like what Malcolm Gladwell does too. And then appropriating examples in the world to like fit that formula. And I love that. It's great because it's good. What I like about her really is one, she has awesome humor. So humor helps things stick with you a little bit longer. And even more importantly, she's done a lot of research. She's like legit data-driven scientist who really has spent decades trying to understand vulnerability and what makes us tick and judgment and shame and things like that. So it's not just her opining and just kind of Telling she didn't you what just she, find a formula. Yeah, and so go with it's it. not just yeah. her worldview. Again, Cynic, Gladwell, all great, right? Fine. But she really struck me. And now I'm going to go back and read her books. I'd love to talk to you after you read yeah, her well, books. Yeah, well, I'm going to yeah. listen to them actually because I don't really read much anymore, unfortunately. I'm like Audible and whatever. And she's podcasts, also, she's the voice on all of her Audible books as well. Oh, is so, she? Yeah. So that so I like it when they do that. So much better. The first book she didn't do at first. So make sure you get the right one. But she went back and re recorded it. So actually, Gladwell's latest book, the Audible version, not only does he narrate it, and he has a very soothing. Amazing. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's almost, there's theater in that guy. He also, though, intersperses it with audio yeah. from real clips of real life situations. He calls it something that's integrated or he, he has a word for it. It's a new type of audio book that's more like a podcast. I'm sure he coined it. It feels more like a podcast than an audio book. It's really good. I highly recommend it. It's a good book. It's also a controversial book. Well, yeah, because he called Turner. Yeah. And yeah. when he talks about this thing called the truth default, which is really fascinating to me, but again, he's masterful because he actually lifted that from a communications professor. Oh, wow. Yeah. He gives that professor credit, but he takes it and then he applies it as a universal truth to everything else that's going on in the world. It just means that when you and I meet, our human nature suggests in the way that we're neurologically kind of like wired is that we're going to believe what we say to each other. And that leads to more deception. So anyway, but for it's most interesting people. for I, most people. Yeah, I have met some people that I feel like don't trust on the first 
and probably human experience. When I was listening to his book as well, I've thought of like the three people I know in my life that are the opposite of that. And which I find fascinating. Is it nature? Is it nurtured? Is it experiences they went through or is it just how they were born? But you talk a lot about gut instinct in your interviews and how you've really relied on that to help drive your success. Absolutely. I have revised it over the years because originally I was just like, trust your gut. Literally just trust your gut. Because every time I didn't trust my gut, it cost me millions of dollars. I can't you know? remember. What did you cite? Oprah? No, you yeah, cite yeah. Oprah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Oprah said that every decision where she hasn't trusted her gut has been the wrong decision. And I was like, well, if it's good enough for Oprah, it's always going to be good enough for me. Well, she's the ultimate unicorn. Yes, she's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. What she did in the 80s is just mind-blowing to me. But now I say trust your gut, but know your numbers. Because I also think trusting your gut or using that it's as It's trust a but verify, basically. Trust but verify, yeah, is a way that people get out of not being responsible with their businesses sometimes. So I want to just go back one quick second, because it's always interesting to hear this story. What was the spark that led you to want to cash in your life savings, quit a good job on a beautiful Very campus, stable. and go into a business that you knew shit about? I know you grew up on a farm. You grew up on a soybean farm, right? Yeah, corn and soybean. Corn and soybean, right. That's not flowers. Totally different business model. And we cash cropped it out. So, I mean, I would do a lot more chores than anybody can ever imagine now, but I wasn't out combining the fields or anything. Sure. So, so I, I don't even know what that word means, yeah, but I was going to pretend I, I do, like, but I think I know what you mean. So, that's yeah, fine. I wasn't like hard labor on the farm. So, yes, we had a lot of other chores to do. But yeah, I think naivety was good a little bit, I will say. I knew I wanted to start a business and I had no idea what area that I wanted to be in. And so I would come up with like a zillion different ideas. And I really, I know this to be true, even though now everyone's like, no, you didn't do that. But I annoyed the heck out of every friend and every family member that I had with like a new idea every third day. So you had it gnawing at, you wanted to do something. Yeah, I just turned 30 and I was like, I'm just going to be on my rocking chair when I'm old and be like, what if I had actually went for something? And you must sleep on ice because you don't look your age. Oh, well, thank you. So the flower business Thanks. is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of concealer. So I think it was that, it was like a time, kind of like a lot of women talk about, you know, internal clocks and stuff for like family planning and stuff. And I was like, I have an internal clock for starting a business. I also, I don't talk about this much. So you're going to get like an inside scoop. I've just recently gotten a little bit more comfortable with it. I had a really bad experience when I left Stanford, a really bad experience that I will write about someday, probably. Like a... Bad personal experience? Yes, a very bad personal experience at Stanford. And the university did not back me up. I'm sorry. I felt they should have. And I was a really good employee for them. I was an amazing employee for them. And I worked 80 hours a week there. I've always been personally driven to make whatever job I have like it's my own company. And you were working in a very hard department because it's basically development. Yes. It's alumni relations. And development. And we were in a huge campaign. And so I was the head of campaign outreach as well. That's not just a normal job. That's a tough job. And I would make every job into like an 80 hour week because I'd always just take on more and take on more. And then my bosses would always give me more because they'd see that I'm responsible and I'm doing really well. And you're probably dealing with a lot of people who have God complex. Yeah, there was a lot of that. A little bit of that. Which helps in development though, because they want to see their name in lights. Exactly. Right. They want to know where the plaque is. Exactly. It taught me that I'm like, what am I doing? I'm bypassing my dream of starting a business to try to do really, really well in this job when they didn't have my back when they should have in this. And so I got through that hard time because that's what I'll do. I don't quit when the going gets tough, but then I quit two weeks after I got through that hard time. And I just thought now is the time I'm going to do this. And if I'm going to work this hard for a company that's not going to have my back later on, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go start my own thing because it can't be worse than this. 
It could be worse than that. I learned. And you could always go. <laughs> That's what and, I thought. Well, you could always go get another job. Exactly. It's not like you're like, unemployable. No, exactly. But I mean, you're, but you're like, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to bet on myself. It was really risky though, because even now I have this in my head of if I fail at this. Women are not given second chances at failure. They just aren't. I mean, you talked to Julie Wainwright from The Real Real and was, you know, the CEO of Pets.com when it went under and people would not bet on her a second chance. Oh, I didn't know that. They do not give women I didn't know that story. a second chance. Whereas you can literally do something illegal as a male CEO and get another job at another huge corporation two weeks later or whatever. That's another podcast probably. But if I fail at this, I don't have a college degree still. How employable am I? Like at what level? I've always had to go in at very low levels, making $30,000 a year and work my way up really by hard work. And I can do that again, but it still was a big risk because I had worked my way up at Stanford. I was making six figures, which for me was a really good salary. And so I still had that, but I was like, I need to do this because it's such a bad taste in my mouth of how much I'd given seven and a half years to Stanford. And hadn't done what I wanted to do. And so this was the first idea where I could bootstrap it. Most of my ideas needed a lot of capital for inventory or for technology or things like that. And this one, I was like, we have a flower mart in San Francisco. I have $49,000. I can buy small quantities of flowers. I can put a little website up. I can try this one for $49,000 less than that. So it was just really opportunity. And the only idea I had in that notebook of like probably 400 ideas that I could do, I thought, with the money, the resources I had, and do it well. Were your friends and family supportive of you? They were supportive in the way that they're like, oh, great, with a little bit of a fake smile. Nobody believed in me. I will just say this, like, really. I got that. Not because of you. Because I've started my own business as well. And that's where your gut comes in. You're like, and that's the whole arena thing again. But it's like, they're saying that, but do they really mean it? You can see it in their eyes. They're like, you're really quitting a job at Stanford? To go do this, like really? It's so high risk to your point because people are looking for, if it didn't work, they're looking for people with college grads. So you did have a lot. When I started my business, at least I knew my trade craft. Like I knew that at least I knew what I was doing because I had done it before. Whereas it's amazing what you've done because you didn't know anything about this business. I didn't know how to do a financial model. My first one I looked back on and it was like eight lines, flowers, rent labor. I had no idea how to do even that. I had 24 cents per unit allocated for marketing. Like I had no idea how much marketing was going to cost. I thought marketing was a waste of money. I was like, I could hire a person for that. Why would I put that in marketing? I knew nothing about anything. And how search and organic versus paid, all that stuff. And in 2010, it was very different. Very different. So I've just watched a lot of YouTube videos. I took a lot of Linda classes online. And so when people tell me that like as an excuse that they don't know how to do something, I'm like, that doesn't work with me because there's no excuse not to that's know what I tell everything. The, so I tell our kids, figure it out. Yeah, FIO, right? totally. You don't even have to go to the library anymore. <laughs> like, no, you don't. You have it at your fingertips. There's no excuse not to know how to do anything in life. I'm going to guess though that you still learned a lot of skills when you're at Stanford, despite having a collective negative experience. And it sounds like one very, very bad experience. You've honed how to work with people, how to get money out of people. In that role in alumni relations, and you're doing campaigns, you are constantly putting forth narratives to convince people in a dream and in a vision. So it's not that dissimilar. There's crossover. At so least much that, crossover right? in everything I've done. Like in, before Stanford, I worked in hospitality with union employees before, and yeah. now I have a manufacturing facility. So that's not that different than You're working. not union? No, we're not no. union. But We can have a whole podcast yeah. on that one day. But, but just yeah. even hourly team members are very different than managing a salaried team of professionals. And they you know? can quit with no notice. 
Oh, absolutely. It's not like in an office, we ask people to give us three weeks notice. We've probably had like 10 people this week that didn't show up to work. At least 10 people on our team. It's Valentine's Day. They have to come in at like midnight or 2 a.m. Right. This is like your, (laughs) like, this is like your tax season for an accountant. Exactly. There's been at least 10 people that have been terminated just by not showing up this week, I'm sure, on our team. So it's just a very different thing. And I've learned from every job that I've had. I've learned so much that helps me today. And yeah, it's a, it's, I'm really it accumulates, right? It. Absolutely. Just on the seasonality thing, is it like suntan lotion where it's like copper tone? It's like 80% of their sales is in July and August. No, and we're or really it, lucky that way. Because it sounds like you've hedged against that and you're not all putting it in just into Valentine's Day. or Absolutely. So we have four big times throughout the year. It's Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. But we're not like some retail industry. I noticed where, you did not say Father's Day. No, Father's Day is not. We've tried a zillion times. I'm like, no, nope, that's not going to happen, even with plants. So those four times are, we scale up seven to eight X what a normal week is. That's all we can do logistically. We leave millions of dollars on the table, but we're not going to run our entire annual business by messing up so royally on those four days. So we'd rather leave millions of dollars on the table. So we sell out all those holidays. And then the rest of the year, I mean, there are like some fluctuations. Summer's really hard. It's called the summer slump. And for a reason, it's really hard. I'm very proud of the fact that we've never laid off team members, which a lot of flower companies will do in the summer. I don't find that that actually even works because it takes really three or four months to train somebody really well. So as soon In the as way you, that you want it done. Exactly. So as soon as we would lay them off and need to hire them back, they've had another job and we need to spend three or four months during a really busy period training them again. So it doesn't make any sense. So we stockpile enough money to be able to carry us through the summer. It's all very intentional in how we do it. But we're also just really fortunate that there's many other reasons why people buy flowers and they don't all fall during those four times. And so if we can make sure that we have the best product and the best customer experience, hopefully they will choose us all those times. And what do you want this end game to be? And by end, I don't mean end, like it's over, but what's the ultimate goal here? I mean, it changes a lot on what I think that is. I built this to sell it, to be really honest, which people don't like to hear because they think it's like a sellout. They want to hear a founder say like, this is my dream and my passion for life. No, I think it's refreshing to hear you say that. It's It's honest. Yeah, I mean, I can't work the amount of hours I work for ever. I mean, I work no less than 100 hours a week. And I have for now nine and a half years and I'm tired. And so there will need to be something in the future. And, and you need time for yourself. Yeah. And also I would like to do one more. Not to be all Brene like, but self-compassion. I mean, you need to take one of the things I love that she says, and I promise not to like go off on her anymore, but the whole thing about just doing something, you don't always have to have a purpose to do something kind of like play is fine. You Absolutely. Know? And I love that she calls but it self-compassion hun- yeah. instead of self-care because self-care I have a really hard time with. Different. Because yes. it just feels so like millennial woo-woo, which I'm really sorry to say that. I just like, because when people use that's, it. That's goop lab shit. I know. It's like, I'm just like, just work hard. I grew up on a farm. So self-care is like the antithesis of what I learned growing up. So it's like really hard for me. But self-compassion, I can understand. But if you're working 100 hours a week, that's that's no joke. No, it's a lot. And so there needs to be. And so when people get mad, when I say things like that, and I'm sure I'll get emails from this. I just wouldn't be like, you you're assuming this. people are listening to the podcast, but I love that. That's, that's really nice of you. That's great. <laughs> Please send nice emails instead. Then, they will. So I can prove to you that people are listening to it. But I just want people to know, like when they say that to me, it does have an impact because I just want to say like, have you worked 10 years, a hundred hours minimum a week? Like have you, and when you do come and tell me that because it's so hard and I'm yeah. tired and There needs to be an end. And also, I have other goals in life. I want to start another company, and I don't want it to be perishable product. I want to take all the learning from this 
and do something better next time. I'm really happy with how this has gone, but I'd like something with more than 2% net profit margins at some point. I would like to be able to do something that isn't so hard. That's McDonald's margins. Just yeah, FYI. exactly. We literally, in the big companies even, I understand why we haven't gotten funding. I don't understand why all of the strikingly similar companies have got funding other than lying on what they're actually going to be able to do. Because if you look at the big companies that are getting... net margins. And those are companies doing a billion dollars of flower sales. Like it's really, I think, arrogant to say like, I'm going to be able to get 30%. Like it's not possible. We have three days. It's it's highly perishable product before you throw it out. So you can't make any mistakes. Like it's just a really And and you already bought it. So you got to move it. Exactly. And you bought it before the customer bought it too. So there's a lot of risk. And so I'd like to take all the learning from this because literally if I knew then what I know now, I never would have started Farm Girl. And I like to be really honest about that with people because it's hard. It is so hard to do a perishable product company and do it well. And I would like to take that learning and put it to something that might be a little easier and be able to be a little bit more successful as far as profitability in the future. And I don't want to be too old when I do that. I get it. I totally do. And do you think that part of your success is because of the kind of the ethical and sustainable way in which not only do you go to market, but the way you're sourcing, or is it also because of the way you do it in terms of design and arrangements and the story, or is it all the above? I think it's all the above, but I have been fascinated to find out why people buy from us and it's shifted. So it used to all be the aesthetic. They just really liked our flowers better than everyone else's. And because- Well, it has to start there, right? It has to, yeah. yeah. But because of the choices we've made in full transparency, I can't do anything in less than 2,500 words, it seems like. So Twitter is not our favorite thing. So every time we make a huge pivot, I tell everybody and I tell them why. So that's the Simon Sinek thing though, that I'm telling them the why, right? But I do that and it's always- Transparency. Yeah, transparency. And it's like, we are going to have to source internationally and this is why. We are going to open a distribution center in Ecuador, and this is why, and tell them exactly why. So we still get a little bit of people that aren't happy with that, but there's not much you can argue with there. It's like, well, do you want us to be in business or not? And this is why we have to do it this way, and this is how we're going to do it, and it is a way that aligns with our values as closely as we can. And we're not going to be perfect ever, but we're going to really make the most, the biggest effort we can to be as close to perfect as we can. And so I think by telling people that, like this year when we pulled our customers, the reason they bought from us wasn't our aesthetic, number one, for the first time. It was very close. It was like one and two within like hairs of each other. But it was because they like our company, which it was, I mean, literally the That's happiest huge. thing I ever heard. Because I'm like, that means that you like us. Like, first of all, I felt very popular. It's your moment, baby. I mean, this is your... Yeah, yeah this is, you yeah. like what I've done. It's really amazing. And also means, as a CEO, I think about it from a standpoint of, that means... I could pivot to other things. And if I do it in the same way, you will receive it well, hopefully. I love that. It's so funny. You mentioned like the Ecuador example, but I work with clients all the time. And it's like, I say to them, you could have like the hard truth now, or you could look opaque and be found out later. Exactly. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. And then someone's going to tweet about it. Can you believe they say this, but they do that? No, actually, they're communicating in an open and honest manner. And I'm glad to hear you say that. It's harder for larger companies to make those decisions because they'd rather bet on no one ever finding out. But today, you'll always be found out. It might not be in 24 hours, but it could be a year from now. And as we know, even things that you have done and bad decisions you made 10 years from now will catch up to you. Absolutely. And I just rather tell people now anyway and move past it than be worried about them finding out later. I respect that. I think that's very, very smart. So I know that we're running a little bit tight on time. But Sorry, I'm not editing lot. any of this. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, and you. I'm so in awe of your success. Thank you. And so happy for you and your team. 
And I can't wait to continue to follow you awesome. and your success Thanks, going Aaron. forward. And let's talk after you listen to Bernie. I will. Awesome. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast, and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Yeah.